This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly. And I'm Matt Dancona. And this is the two mats for the week ending Friday, the 21st of July. And welcome to you all. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much again, as ever. We're very grateful for your listens. Certainly are. Yeah. Uh, Well, and this week's a bit different, really, isn't it? Yeah, we're taking... We've gone on the road a bit. Yeah, all the way to (laughs) Westminster. It's a long way. It was. And we met with the wonderful... Is that too too strong? No, I think it's absolutely spot on. Wonderful Caroline Lucas, MP. Who is, very sadly... Yeah. departing Parliament, yeah. and uh, we talked to her about that and why she's leaving, Yeah, and we talked to her about uh, her views on public standards in public life, and um, also about uh, her quite crisp views on Keir Starmer's failures on the Green Agenda. Yeah, she was very strong on Keir Starmer. She was, and um, I have a feeling that, to quote the old Tony Benn line about giving up Parliament so he can pursue a career in politics i think yeah. she's only getting started which is good news oh, listen, man, i found it i've always admired her yeah, because it must be a hard gig being the only member of your party in all that seat but also being a woman as well in a place that can be condescending and misogynistic you know and hopefully that's changing for the better but she is so kind of measured and smart and intelligent yeah. i think she's going to be a big loss on those benches she'll be a big loss to parliament and perhaps a big gain to the broader public sphere i hope so i yeah. think she's got a lot left to say i hope so i also found it interesting and towards the end so you'll have to listen about what she's doing currently as a as a thing on the side absolutely so, and yeah. re- talks about her new book which is very yeah, interesting. that's right yeah yeah no she's she's um a real really fascinating character uh and i'm i was really thrilled that she said yes to be our first yeah. interviewee she was our first target and she said yes and she really delivered. She did not disappoint. She didn't. So what should we call this episode? Uh, in praise of Caroline. 
in, in praise of Caroline. Or farewell, yeah. Caroline. Farewell. Uh, see you soon. Um, <laughs> um, we need something better than that. Um, How about Caroline Lucas interview? The Caroline Lucas interview. That's what, what it, it says, says on the tin. <laughs> so this is The Two Mats, episode five, The Caroline Lucas interview. Enjoy. Enjoy. I've just come from Deputy Prime Minister's questions, so Oliver Dowden was standing in again for uh, for Rishi Sunak. And um, I just think the way that they can stand there and make light of just the hideousness of what this government is doing on everything from the small boats. And one of the questions that made me most angry was the reply about why it was perfectly perfectly legitimate and indeed desirable to paint over a mural in a, in a reception centre for children because that's going to deter the boats. I mean, what planet are these people on? So we went from that to the fact that there are 4.3 million children living in poverty, but according to the government, they're doing loads to sort that out. And in fact, the numbers have gone down, they say, which we know isn't true. Uh, and then we started off with North Sea oil and gas and being told that new licences in the North Sea are going to be essential in order to uh, get our fuel bills down and guarantee energy security, which is just an outright lie. Parking climate change just for a second. Any oil and gas that is extracted from the North Sea, as you know, will simply get sold on global markets at international prices. So it does nothing for Britain's energy security per se and does a hell of a lot for wrecking the climate. Yeah. So, yeah, I am... I am angry. I'm definitely going to come back to Rosebank and, and the oil field Brilliant. issues about that at some length, please. But, you know, there must have been a dozen or more times just this year that you've come back into your office <laughs> feeling enraged and frustrated Very and true. angry. And I, I, I went back and I read your maiden speech, and this is in 2010, right? And you said that, you know, what, what a single MP could do, because you were in this unique position. You know, you were the first new member of a new national party for a long, long time to, yep. to make a maiden speech as a, as a serving MP. And what, one of the things that struck me was when you said a single MP can challenge the executive. And I wonder now, when you're coming to the end of your time as a, an MP, whether you felt that's actually true, whether you can, you can challenge them verbally, but can you materially challenge the executive as a single MP? I think you can change the debate. I think you can put questions on the agenda that weren't there before. I think you can help to mobilise people outside of Parliament as well as inside. I mean, I don't think I meant, even in my maiden speech, that one MP on their own could materially, on their own, change government policy, clearly. As an opposition MP, no, no MP can, sadly, do that uh, on their own or even, even with the rest of their party if they are, if they are not the government. But I do think, just going back to that moment, and I was looking back at my... Um, maiden speech just recently too in the context of of making the decision not to stand again and sort of two things struck me one was that it really is quite extraordinary that the people of Brighton did take that leap of faith and did vote for a completely new party you know and that we were going to them at a time of of huge anger with the political system it was after the MPs election expenses and and at a time when you know there were all kinds of difficulties and and I do still think it was remarkable that they did do that that they did put their faith in a new party and I am really proud that 
I've been re-elected at every election since with a with an increased majority. One battle that has been won just recently is around a new GCSE in, in natural history, which might sound a very small thing, but I think does have the potential to be transformative in the yeah. sense that it does mean that young people will have a very different experience of learning about, about nature and actually getting out into nature. But on the, on the big issues, I, what I can say is, is that by having a green in the room, things get onto the agenda that weren't already there. So, for example, um, I think I was the first MP in, in a generation to, to have a big debate in Parliament about drugs law, because at the time I was elected, Brighton was the drugs death capital of, of Britain. So having a, a, a debate about reviewing the Misuse of Drugs Act and seeing what we could do about drugs policy was important. It hasn't led to the change I want to see. So on that, on le- that level, you could say it wasn't successful. But nonetheless, it's, it's on the agenda now in a way that it wasn't. Parliament has voted for... Um, for saying that there is a climate emergency. I mean, you know, again, compared to where we need to be, words are cheap. But 13 years ago, I'm not sure that I would have necessarily thought Parliament would have said, yes, there's a climate emergency. Would you you have been surprised? I suspect you would have been. Uh, When you came in as an MP, the beginning of this long Conservative era, the incoming coalition government was at least performatively, at least in theory, sympathetic to green issues it yeah. was at least they were hugging least, huskies and uh, hugging huskies that. and recycled trainers and so forth and here we are in the summer of 2023 and we have a minister of state saying you know this this uh, mural for children who have uh, come into this country from horrific circumstances and uh, it cannot be there because it will encourage and therefore its absence will deter refugees and we could go on about all the other ways in which the, the the social ethos of this government has changed would you have thought that possible i don't think i would actually mm. which perhaps was was complacent or naive i don't know but it feels it feels that we're in such a dark place now and it's so interesting who your heroes become you know suddenly theresa may now yeah. yes is a hero in a way that she certainly never was when she was prime minister but she is standing up for people who are victims of modern slavery and she is fighting back against her government that is trying to mean that those people won't get any kind of support um, under this new so-called illegal migration bill. So, Is that repentance, do you think, rather than conviction? Because, I mean, she was famously a big proponent of the hostile environment. She know? was. I mean, she was the one who sent the vans exactly, around, wasn't she? Yeah, saying, yeah. But I don't know. She has... It would be quite interesting to sort of... Um, really get inside her head and work out the psychology of it because I I do believe she does care about modern slavery it's kind of weird she doesn't care about all the things that you would imagine would go alongside that for the same reason in other words you know people that are being exploited not getting kicked further in the stomach Um, so I I agree that it's it's a bit of an anomaly in one sense but I I do think she actually believes the stuff on modern slavery Um, hearing people like John Major you know speaking out about the total Brexit you know drama and 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 horror or or talking about you know just the the disrepute which isn't a strong enough word but i can't think of a stronger one contempt uh that boris johnson has has led the political system into and it really really matters that's what i think is so important you know it's very easy just to knock all politicians and say we're all the same and they're all crap and they're all on the make and undoubtedly some are but i think if you if you really end up believing that your whole political class is worthy of contempt, then I don't know where you go after that. Yeah. I think you go to very, very scary places. And f- from my perspective about being, you know, so driven by by needing action on, on climate and nature, 
you need a government that's got the trust of the people to make the big changes that we urgently need. And when you've got a government that is not just a government, but more than that, you know, just essentially a, a parliament that is um, treated and viewed with such contempt, uh, to some extent, understandably so, then I think it's, it's dangerous in so many ways. Is it harder to be a Green in a populist era? Because necessarily being a Green involves responsibility, strategic vision, moral principles, rather than just worrying about the next Twitter cycle and emotionalism. Although, of course, emotion can form a big part of environmental belief. Has that made things harder? I think it has made things harder because it it means that green policies are just seen as fair game to be treated as political footballs, as wedge issues, as part of the culture war. And you can see it sort of playing out again just in, in, um, in the chamber just over the last few days, you know, where, where it's now uh, Rishi Sunak's favourite thing to, to pretend that Keir Starmer is somehow the political wing of Just Stop Oil. I mean, it's just so stupid and cheap and if, if only. dangerous. Well, quite. <laughs> in one sense, if only. Mm-hmm. And in another sense, you know, don't make it sound as if anybody who cares about the environment is somehow a fringe group you know in so many other countries now it's it's just economic logic that of course you would factor in environmental concerns as you as you design policies right across the board whereas here it's kind of seen as this sort of fringe weirdness that mm. is is yeah it's just used as a just another cult yeah exactly i kind of maybe really naively assume that even the worst of them believe that there is a climate emergency and that something drastic needs to happen but they kind of mitigate that knowledge by current day pragmatism you know and they justify it to themselves that we've just got to get to the next step so when you hear Sunak talking about Rosebank oil field and saying yeah but you know we're still net importers of oil and if we if we had more of it ourselves that would help us make the transition you know I kind of want to believe that he at least is sincere about that pragmatism but do you do you think that there there are characters out there who are you know in power and just desperately insincere about the the state of domestic politics the state of international politics and crises and the state of the climate as well that they're just chancing it I think there are a small number who fall into that category, you know, the ones who are linked to Tufton Street and The Guardian's just done some interesting work looking at the shares that some of them hold in all kinds of oil companies and everything else. So undoubtedly there are some who are just not going to be persuadable and and, and, and aren't going to come with us. In terms of the government as a whole, do they believe in the climate emergency? I don't think they believe in the word emergency. (laughs) The word emergency suggests that when you dial 999, you want the fire engines to come now, not in 30 years' time. And what worries me is that there is no sense of urgency from this government, as well as all of the lies around Rosebank. And I don't know if we can just briefly focus on that for a second, because it just feels to me the... The, the strongest symbol of stupidity, really, so would we, be we to should give... Explain, let me just pause you a second, because yeah. we should give I'll it a bit what of context for the listeners, please. Yeah. yeah, so Rosebank is the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. The Norwegian company Equinor want to develop it, and right now we're waiting for the government to say whether or not they're going to give the green light to that. And the concern is that they will give the green light. And the point is that they try to defend the decision in terms of of energy security or in terms of our energy um, prices and so forth. And yet with Rosebank, that argument is even more 
weak and egregious than it is with any other oil field in the sense that 90% of the oil from Rosebank, and it is mostly oil, will be exported um, because it's not the kind that we use in UK refineries. So this is going to do absolutely bugger all, if I can say that on your lovely podcast, for energy security. By the way, you can say that and much worse. Oh, good. Should you you wish to. (laughs) Um, It's not in force, but we're very very open-minded. Um, yeah, so it'll do, it will do nothing for, for energy security yeah. or, or, or our prices. But what it will do is, A, drive the, the, the climate crisis, and B, you know, we are actually going to hand over to this Norwegian oil company £3.4 billion of taxpayers' money because there are so many you know, loopholes, to call it politely, in the windfall tax and so many ways in which money still goes to the to the oil companies. It, if the public understood this, you know, when we're being told that we can't afford to pay nurses or teachers or doctors, yeah. and yet we can afford to give it to a, an oil company from another country to exacerbate the climate crisis. I mean, what, yeah. what planet, frankly, are yeah. we all on? And I kind of know the answer to this question, but what is stopping the public from understanding this, do you think? It's, it's a really interesting question because you'd have thought it ought to be fairly clear to be able to understand it but there is just such a spinning machine coming out of government you know all the time when you ask them about Rosebank as I have done constantly they will reply in terms of 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 energy security and cost and so forth and so you never get the chance to have the second bite at the question you know what I mean they you ask the question they reply and then you move on to the next questioner so so we've not been able to get it out that way and I have to say at this point that I am deeply depressed about the Labour Party as well because if Keir Starmer said right now, if there is a Labour government, we would reverse the decision on Rosebank, that would be enough to give the chilling effect to Equinor, who would think, well, why would we be investing all this money if it's going to get... That would kill the deal. It would kill the deal. Yeah. So why why would they not do it? Instead of that, you've got Keir Starmer dancing on the head of a pin saying we won't have any new oil and gas except for the oil and gas that has just been given the green light by the government. Right. And when it comes to Rosebank, as I say, it is huge. It's three times bigger than the Cambo oil field that some people may have heard of, which was yeah. which was big enough. So it's it just doesn't add up. Yeah. And we've also just last week had the Climate Change Committee's report where it said, you know, this idea that we're going to be a net zero country by 2050, yeah. you know, that 20% of the government's plans are fit for purpose. So yeah. 80% of them are not fit for purpose. They're duplicitous it's a lie and that's down from 39 percent whenever it was last year you know so so the plans are on sand you know absolute baloney yeah why is this not screaming from every front page why why is Keir Starmer not using this as the lead attack on on this government Mm. who are blind or 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 worse Mm. to the you know this existential threat yeah I do you know I don't I think there are lots of different strands in that question because I think the public, generally speaking, is really worried about it and and lots of the polls will will, will tell us that. And they're worried about it in spite of having, you know, a drip feed from the right-wing press and from the government that either it's stupid or it's too expensive or or whatever else. So I think think public concern is real and certainly when you have those um, so-called citizens' assemblies, you know, when you get a representative group of, of people to hear the evidence about climate and say what they think should happen there, their proposals are 10 times bolder than anything that we ever hear from, right. from any government. Right. Um, so I think the public's in one place. I think I think on so many issues, Labour is just trying to look serious and grown up. And, and it's very depressing that to look serious and grown up in Labour's eyes, you have to be, you know, for a bit of oil and gas and you have to be 
for um, you know massive pay restraint, even though it's not going to fuel inflation because it's the people at the top end of the scale yeah. that are fueling inflation. Yeah. So, so you've got that happening. You've got a right-wing media. I mean, I know it's easier just to sit here and blame the media the Please whole time. Do. Yeah, but no. um, We do it all with, the time. With some honourable exceptions. Yeah. Y- you know, we, we know the kind of coverage um, that, 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 that this agenda gets, gets um, treated with in, in so much of the media. So that's part of the answer. But yeah. I, I, I genuinely would really... It would be such an interesting historical moment to look back at if we are lucky enough to survive this, to go back to this time and think, why is it, knowing what we knew then... We didn't act when we still had time. And that is the question that absolutely keeps me awake at night. Because it's not a lack of evidence. We've got the evidence. It's not a lack of money. We could do this. It's not a lack of technological know-how. We've got that. Yeah, yeah. What is it? What is it, the psychological thing that means yeah. that, that we're not jumping out of the boiling water before we get boiled alive? Well, we were talking to your secretary, Will, before, who said the whole thing is reminiscent of that Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. You know? yes. And it really does, you know. Yeah. I mean, at what point, how bad does it need to get before, yeah. you know, this just becomes surreal, the, the avoidance of what's coming down the road. I know? mean, I know you said we weren't going to talk about the whole BBC scandal, but, I mean, it is it is <laughs> extraordinary that in the same sort of week when, um, you know, we've just been told that it's been the hottest June ever, ever on yeah, record, yeah. and what's been leading the news for the last four days yeah. in a row, you know, and, of course, it's serious, but it's not it's not of global no, significance. No one's going to die because of that, no. you know. Yeah. No. Yeah. As David Wallace Wells says, says in The Uninhabitable Earth, that it's very hard to make uh, problems in which we're all complicit yes. into good political narratives. Yep. And I wonder if you agree with that. I, I do agree with that. Um, and, and yet, you know, that's often used as a way of of constraining action and, and putting all of the responsibility on... on sorry, It on, might be a spur. It could be, but I worry that one of the logical lines from that is to say that, you, you, you know, we're all complicit and therefore individuals need to change and therefore why aren't they? And, you know, there, there's some truth in that, but there's an awful lot more truth in the fact that we are all living within a system that was not of our creation and that makes it really difficult to change. Yeah. So you're living in a village without a bus service and you're being told to leave your car at home or, you know, you're being told to insulate your home and you, you know, you'd just love to put food on the table, frankly, never mind solar panels on your roof. Yeah. So so I do think that there's a danger with that argument in, in the sense that it can make it sound like what we need is is only individual behaviour change rather than systems change. Voluntary behaviour and, yeah. and for some reason businesses to sort everything else. Yeah. And the missing part <laughs> of the trio is... Yeah. Serious government action. Exactly. And yet government is the one that could put in place of the course. enabling framework in a matter of moments if yeah. they chose to. Exactly. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. Let's let's talk about Brexit because that's our, mm. our specific yes. bone to, to uh, chew on. You know, I used use the word sabotage we sabotaged a lot of the progress that we'd made within the European Union, uh, especially on environmental issues. And I wonder how you how bad you feel the Brexit decision was. We can probably get over that fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But also, what you see as a as a route back, you know, is there a logical route back towards a closer affiliation with with the European Union that could get us back on track or has mm. some of that been lost forever now? Yeah. Well, it won't surprise your listeners to know that on a kind of a, a chart of one to 10, how serious was the Brexit decision? It's pretty up, yeah, it's about 9.5, I think, probably. Or 9. <laughs> well, where was the missing half? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd love to know. <laughs> Blue well, passports? The, co- the common agricultural policy was pretty crap, but yeah, but, yeah. 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 The, one, the one that's replacing it hasn't been brilliant yet either. Yeah. I think it was deeply serious and um, I, I feel so angry with the campaign that led up to it. And I feel angry with myself. Of all the votes that I have cast in my 13 years in Parliament, the one that I regret the most was voting for there to be a referendum. And I did vote in favour of that. And I voted for that because because I'd been a member of the European Parliament for 10 years and I had sympathy with the view that there'd never been a real debate about, about the European Union and why we were members and what the advantages were. And I naively, so naively now, as I think back to it, thought that if we had the referendum, we could have an honest conversation about it and a discussion and people would learn exactly what the EU does. And what made me so angry was was the fact that the media never covered seriously what was happening in the EU. And I used to notice that, you know, day after day, as you go into the parliament in Brussels, you'd see the headlines on all the other German papers, French papers, Italian papers, and they would often cover what was being discussed in the European yeah. Parliament. Never, ever yeah. in the British papers, unless it was Boris Johnson in his bloody bent bananas. Yeah. Um, so so it's not surprising that people didn't really know the benefits of being part of the EU. So it was deeply serious. It, it, it was a horribly flawed campaign. We didn't need to lose that campaign. We just, yeah. It was just fought so Lots badly. Lots of complacency all around, yeah. And, and so transactional. You know, the other side was talking about hearts and minds and sovereignty, and we were talking about, you know, how much your sausages cost in your supermarket trolley you know it was no contest yeah so so that's part of it part of it I mean I, it's interesting isn't it to look at the polls and the number of people now are willing to say that they think it was a mistake um, yeah. which I think is is a positive 
thing. Yeah. In, in terms of a route back, I think there, there will be a route back. I think the question is is how long it's going to take and how much damage gets done before we, we arrive. And, yeah. and of course, you know, what terms it will be on because we were very blessed in the terms that we had before in terms of the opt-outs that we had, in terms of the single currency and so on and so forth. What that will look like um, if and when we go back in, I'm not sure. But Hard to imagine us being readmitted without signing up to Schengen and the euro, isn't it? It is hard. But on the other hand, I just sense that at a time when there is so much insecurity in the world, maybe some of those calculations might be different. I think I think the bigger thing to get over is that I think that the rest of the EU would want to know that it was the settled view of a majority exactly. in the country. I think that's yeah. the big thing. And and so that's why I say, you know, even if even if the polls now are saying, what is it, 56% or something like yeah. that, who, who would be in favour of returning? I think it's got to be a bit more than that and it's got to be for longer to demonstrate that that is a yeah. settled view. But I think if it were, then I think some of those issues probably could be negotiated. Interesting. Yeah, interestingly, I think the, you know, that, that 56 or 58%, whatever it is, Disproportionately, the younger people are yes, crying the out demographics, for it, yeah. which I, I find personally like really yeah. encouraging. Yeah. And actually, it brings me on to another tangential question, which is about sixteen and seventeen-year-olds. You know, and should should we enfranchise a younger group of people who would perhaps be more influential in politics day to day and certainly more engaged than than a lot of the older demographic? Yeah, it's 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 long-standing Green Party policy to um, to bring in votes at sixteen. And I know, you know, the criticism is always that, well, people at the age of 16 don't necessarily know what they're voting for. But as I always say, if that was going to be the criterion in order to be able to have the vote, then you'd be ruling out a hell of a lot more people right. of all age yeah. groups yeah. Who, who would no longer uh, yeah. be eligible. So I think, yeah. you know, we, of course, we would need to have more teaching of politics in schools and that would be an entirely positive thing. But it's, it's young people's futures. Yeah. You know, that's what we're trashing, frankly, right now. And so it feels to me like they absolutely should have a, a yeah. say over it. You know, you've talked in the past about being very interested in how young people approach activism and social media and, and how committed they are to causes. What what can we learn or what should we adopt from from other countries, perhaps, or other political systems about how we could reform our own political system so that it was there was a more... Uh, a greater equilibrium across the demographics and people were, especially that younger audience, were more influential in how mm. we look at politics. Well, I think the other the other side of of, of giving 16-year-olds the, the vote would be to make sure their votes actually count. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that would be, um, you know, fairly predictably perhaps for me to say, to bring in a fairer voting system. And that's not only because smaller parties like the Green Party would do much better, though we would, um, but it is about giving people from a very young age the faith and confidence that their vote counts, that their voice matters, that they can change things. And at the moment, you know, if you're a young person living in, um, you know, huge numbers of constituencies around the country, you know that failing a revolution, the same party is going to get back in time and time and time again, which is utterly dis disenfranchising, disillusioning, disengaging, you know, and so and so it's not surprising that, that, that more young people have, are, are kind of sceptical about the power of, of yeah. voting. So, but, I mean, given how bloody obvious that solution is, you know, if you were started from a blank piece of paper, yeah. there's no way you'd have this current no. system. It's obscene, actually. It is, it is. What would have to happen before all this talk about PR became, became reality? I'm sorry to have another go at Keir Starmer, but I'm going to because, because you know, there was a fantastic campaign that was run inside the Labour Party for whom I have, you know, such respect for the people who ran that campaign because it took so much time and effort and energy and imagination 
to get a majority of people at Labour Party conference last time around to vote in favour of changing the voting system and the unions to get them on board as well was, was no small feat. So to have done all of that and then to have Keir Starmer turn around and say, well, over my dead body, ain't going in the manifesto, I think was such, such a slap in the face and also just so short-sighted because right now, of course, Labour's riding high in the polls and maybe under current calculations, although there are some questions about it, maybe PR wouldn't make that much difference to them right now. But if he's serious about the transformative nature of the kind of programme he wants to bring in, he's going to need more than one one term of office. He's going to need at least two. And once you've been in office for a term, you're not going to be guaranteed to be 20 points ahead or 15 points ahead or whatever else. So you would have thought that in his own mind, it would have been worth um, adopting a, a, an electoral, a different electoral system. But he's so scared of being painted as weak yeah. that he won't do it. And instead yeah. of which we see these ridiculous tribal loyalties coming out, which means that people like Neil Lawson are being threatened with expulsion from the Labour Party, you know, simply for liking a tweet or for retweeting something that was talking about, you know, the importance of parties broadly on the centre and the left working together. Yeah, it seems crazy. Can, can I ask about, could be related to that, Caroline, you, you, you mentioned earlier trust in the political system uh, and Parliament specifically. And um, I think we all, Matt and myself, were, were very uh, impressed by the speech you gave on the Monday after the Privileges Committee uh, report mm. came out on Boris Johnson's COVID um, uh, lies, and um, it, it was it was it was very impassioned, but also very much to the point, which was that we'd reached a moment of complicity and cowardice. And I wondered, it's now more than a quarter century since the Nolan report. Um, do we? Ha- what practical things can be done? to make the system of um, ethical regulation uh, generate not just better behaviour but also a better ethos within the political world? Mm. Well, I mean, some of the changes are are relatively straightforward in the sense that it it is an extraordinary anomaly that that the ministerial code applies to everybody except the prime minister and and indeed that he's the only arbiter of it in terms of of, of who else it's going to um, apply to. So he, Only he can initiate um, yeah, in, so investigations got, by his advisor. Exactly. So he has an ethics advisor, but that ethics advisor is incredibly constrained mm. into, into what they can look at. So, you know, if you or I had a concern about somebody and went to the ethics advisor and said, could you look at this? They can't unless the prime minister gives the, the go-ahead, which is which yeah just doesn't make sense so I think there are some things that one could do like giving that ethics advisor a much stronger remit and making sure that the ministerial code had some kind of of independent oversight and I know people start getting twitchy when you suggest that because they say you know you can't have lay people having powers over over elected people and I get that that if you're elected in a sense you are answerable to your electorate more than you are to you know a, a person who is who is tasked to look look over you but it, you know it would not be beyond the realms of imagination to think of some constellation of liaison committee chairs for example which are the most senior committee chairs um in parliament who already have um quite a lot of, of influence you could you could imagine some system of checks and balances such that you're still having elected people making some of these decisions over the fitness of others to be to be in parliament without it only remaining in the hands of, of one person the prime minister and i think you know originally we had a much more far-reaching uh, recall system where constituents 
could recall their MPs more easily than having to jump through the 10% and they can only do that if 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 um, Parliament has basically banned the person for, for 10 days or more or whatever. Yeah. So there are ways that we could have made MPs, all MPs, more accountable to their constituents and there are ways that we could have ensured that all power doesn't just rest with, with one Prime Minister because yes. it just feels so so quaint really that the people who drew up the original laws and rules would have just thought that you know honorable members behave honorably and good therefore chaps. right honorable members exactly the good chaps theory of government well i think it's been shown fairly tested that one to destruction yeah. haven't we yeah, yeah the that's fact not that you so can't well. call someone a, you can't call a liar a liar in the mother of all parliaments yeah. i think is probably yeah. symptomatic of the issue yeah you know? exactly yeah what are you going to do? Why are you, le- why are you, why are you so leaving? You're sit- listen, you're sitting on a bulletproof majority. 20,000 or just a few votes short? You could go on. I mean, why are you leaving? I am leaving in the hope and expectation that the seat will be filled by another Green. So there will still be at least and hopefully several more than just one Green here in Parliament. But, but I'm leaving because the thing that motivates me most of all is action around climate and as, a, as an MP, and particularly as the only MP of my party, I have to be the expert on everything. I have to be the front bench person on education and economics and Brexit and just everything. Yeah. And so you're just skating so thinly to do that. And then easily two days a week is spent doing constituency work. And right. I, think, I think a lot of people haven't really caught up now with just how much constituency work there is. And I think that has changed a lot over the last couple of decades because as so many other public services just decimated, it feels like the MP's office is just about the only thing that's left standing in some constituencies. And so you get so many inquiries and pleas for help where in the past you might have been able to direct them to, you know, a local NGO or or more resources at the council or, you know, some other body that might be able to help. And, and now all of that's gone. Yeah. And so that's massively important. But again, it's just such a, a diversion from... Yeah. where I want to put my energies now. Just on that constituency work, is there a pattern to to the kind of complaints or inquiries or questions that your constituents need you to help with? What, I mean, what is the kind of the worst lump of, of people? The home office. The home office, <laughs> right, OK. I think if you yeah. were to ask almost anybody yeah. here, they would say of all the departments, the, the one that is most dysfunctional and causes all of us most distress is the Home Office right. just because you know you never get the answers out of them and, and people you know just aren't being treated properly by them. And is that just incompetence or is that like just cultural bloody mindedness? That- I mean I, I'm sure there are some really good people who work at the Home Office and I don't want to um, be tarring them with that same brush but, but, but I, I imagine like all departments they are massively um, overworked and understaffed I imagine I should have thought at least that morale is probably relatively low yeah well you've um, got to work with Suella Braverman quite you? yes yeah. well, people have our deepest sympathy um, <laughs> so there is that I mean beyond that I think I think talking to my colleagues the the picture of what the biggest constituency issues are is very different constituency by constituency I mean in Brighton housing is is one of the biggest issues just the the lack of affordable housing the terrible quality of the housing that there is so once you're liberated from all the the two days a week constituency work having to know about brexit and this that i'm going to change the world just yes how are you how how do you intend to change i wish i had an answer to that question because you're a workaholic aren't you (laughs) i'm a bit you work very hard i work quite hard but But you're not going to just go on i'm not going to go away with my knitting no but genuinely I, i i haven't yet worked out what it's going to look like and yeah. and the reason for that is 
you know, like like many others, I do work 80 hours a week at this job. It is all encompassing. And just having the space to step back and breathe and just take stock and work out yeah. you know, where best next. Yeah. Cause One I thing you're doing, though, is this extraordinary, the doula work with the dying. The doula work with the dying, yeah. What's that about? It's about living, actually, which is yeah. what makes it so exciting. So this is a wonderful organisation called Living Well, Dying Well, which is based in Lewis, just up the road from Brighton. And they train people to spend time with people towards the end of their lives. And the theory behind it is that we have kind of medicalized death to a huge degree. And of course, sometimes that is exactly what you want. If you've just had a heart attack, then having a medical uh, approach to your situation is, is, is very helpful. But so many people don't need that um, and don't want that. And in fact, you know, the vast majority of us would want to die at home if we, if we possibly can. And so it's about how we how we relearn what, what we used to know about death and dying and how we have much more of a community-based response to it. Yeah. And what I love about it is that it just cuts through the crap. You yeah. know, when you're talking to someone who's dying or even if you're just talking about dying in general, then it does focus your mind on what matters. Um, yeah. And it does make you appreciate every every last minute of every last hour that you have, doesn't it? Is so, it the case that, that, as has often been said, especially recently, that... that, that the dying never say I wish I'd worked harder exactly. or I should earn more yeah all their regrets if they have them yeah are connected to wish I'd spent more time with my loved ones exactly. I wish I'd spent more time on my things I'm passionate about yeah um, yeah is that is that what you're experiencing that's certainly what I'm experiencing and I just think it's such a a, a privilege and a, and a reminder to such to a lesson to have isn't it? that yeah. yes yeah. before it is too late because absolutely obviously hopefully one will come to that conclusion when there's yeah. still time to do something exactly. about it. <laughs> well, yeah. talking of time, just one last question. What, and it's, it's such a broad question that you can answer it any which way you like. But how, when you look ahead 25 years towards 2050, you know, where we're meant to be this net zero, yeah. what, do you th- what, what do you think Britain's going to look like and feel like? What are the, what's in your head, for better or worse, what kind of country will Britain be, do you think? I mean, I just think we are at a crossroads right now. And I mean, I know you could say that at any time, but it does feel as if the two different directions feel more stark than than in recent years, for sure. And obviously, one of those routes does lead to an incredibly dark and, and terrible place, really. I mean, if we don't deal with the climate and nature emergencies with the speed that's needed, and if we carry on with governments that are as draconian and as illiberal and as populist and worse uh, as we have right now then then that picture is is a very grim one but i i do genuinely think that there is a, an incredibly good chance that we will wake up in time and that in terms of answering that question one could imagine a time when you know we have had the green transition and and our energy is being produced more by renewables and people have a roof over their heads and and they might have a universal basic income and that and, and that they're not feeling so insecure. I mean, that is all within our grasp. And I suppose I want to answer it that way because I think I think hope is an incredibly important thing. Not hope just in the sense of a of a lottery ticket that you clutch as you sit on your sofa as um as it's been put. But but hope is something that will get you out the door and, and make you change things. And and we do have it within our powers and within our economic means to ensure that everybody has enough, that we live in harmony with this precious earth and the species that we're blessed to share it with, that we 
live with a, a richness and an appreciation which links back to the work on death in a way of just realizing what what life could be like so i'm going to plump for that one please terrific that's the one i want Great. Great. option a we like it we're yeah. with you we're, we're, we're with you, with you we're definitely with you non-grim option yeah. <laughs> caroline thank you so thank much you so for being much. our first guest i hope you've enjoyed it we've enjoyed it tremendously tremendous thank you very much so i hope you'll agree that was a fascinating chat with a quite brilliant politician and please folks remember the latest edition of the new european which is the newspaper that brings you this wonderful podcast is on newsstands now as well as on our website that's at the new european.co.uk and listeners to the two mats podcast can get a great deal on a subscription just go to the new european.co.uk forward slash two mats that's the number two m-a-t-t-s and if you sign up, I will give you a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover, which are flying off the shelves like hotcakes. Thanks as ever to our wonderful producer, the third Matt. That's Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. And until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Goodbye. goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.